Well, if you're just joining us, um, we're nearing the conclusion of our current sermon series titled You're Only Human and Why That's a Good Thing. And we've been following Kelly Capick's book with the same title as a reference and resource. And the, the simple heart behind why we decided to do this as a topical series coming out of our last um, biblical series in Hebrews was the notion that our entire culture is discipling us with the mindset that you should not have limits that you should always seek opportunities to be more effective, more efficient and more productive, work harder, um, never slow down, don't live in your limits. But God created us to live with limits. Um, we are human and finite, and that's actually a good thing, regardless of what our culture tells us about our worth being directly tired, tired, excuse me, I'm tired, tied to our productivity and so especially um, when early on in COVID, the quarantine shut us down, a lot of people in the midst of the craziness said, one good thing is I didn't realize how busy I was and how distracted I was and the ability to slow down and emphasize what's important with relationships. Whenever this clears up, we don't want to go back to that same um, frenetic pace of life. And then coming out of it, hearing people regularly say, gosh, I might be busier than I was before. So how do we seek to live differently? Um, today, we're following the conversation from last week where he posed the question, why doesn't God just immediately change me? The moment I become a believer, why doesn't he just do away with all the issues in my life, all the ways I fail to love God and others? And while God is sovereign and he can do anything he pleases, he really does, as a creative artist, um, play the long game. And, and that most of the character issues in our life um, that he's changing and maturing just take time. And so flowing out of that conversation last week of how does growth and sanctification happen throughout our lives, the follow-up question that Capic poses is, um, do I need the church? Like, do I actually need the local body of Christ? And the overwhelming, unequivocal biblical answer is yes, 100% you need the local church. The first quote I put in your bulletin under the priority is from Tim Keller saying, if you say I'm following Jesus but I'm not really involved in the church, listen, no, the answer is no, you cannot. You can't be following Jesus without being deeply involved in the local church. It's just that simple. Now, that doesn't in any way mean that you, you can't be saved apart from going to church or that going to church means you're a Christian. Don't get that twisted. He's just saying that the Bible is clear that the church is the bride of Christ. The church is the body of Jesus for whom he shed his blood. And there's no biblical category for someone um, following Jesus on their own apart from a local body. The body of Christ is where we tangibly experience um, his love, care, grace, and affection, and where we grow. We can't grow and mature in the ways that God desires for us to and that we want to grow um, apart from the body of Christ. Now, time out. I know, just bringing up this topic. I said earlier during the giving time, we want to be a safe place for people that are church damaged. And I'm thankful that from my perspective, at least, I feel like we are. A lot of people that leave ministry and feel beat up in other contexts say that they experience hope to be a grace-centered, safe place. And we absolutely want that to be the case. And I know the topic of the church and in being involved in the church it can be super triggering. Um, issues of spiritual abuse and hurt um, are real. If anything, I think we should be encouraged that this is... Um, coming to light more and more, even in the past year and a half. One thing that brought it more into the mainstream consciousness was the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast, which is one of the most famous podcasts in the world that chronicled the heartbreaking kind of tragedy of a church in Seattle that became one of the largest mega churches in the world and um, then had a downfall of just kind of spiritual wreckage and carnage and 
coming out of that, um, Chuck DeGroat, who was our men's retreat speaker last year, who's a theologian and author and counselor who was invited in to try to help navigate some of the hurt, felt the need to write a book titled When Narcissism Comes to Church. And I read it. One of the sad, heartbreaking realities that DeGroat points out is that, um, sadly, the American church reflects the culture um, so often that we hire pastors that we think are strong, gifted leaders and visionaries, um, but they're really just narcissists. And, and they don't reflect the heart of God and his compassion and humility and love and patience. Um, another lady that has spoken deeply into this area of spiritual abuse is Diane Langberg. And one book I read last year that she wrote, Redeeming Power, Understanding Authority and Abuse in the Church, um, I mean, led me to tears. I'm currently enrolled in a doctoral program at Covenant Seminary, which I'm extremely thankful to be a part of, and it's been a huge gift. Um, Diane Langberg came and spoke to our class last summer, and for four and a half hours when she lectured, you could have heard a pin drop, not only because of the wisdom, but even just the weightiness of, that she brought of, of walking with people that have been really damaged. Most recently, the president of the seminary where all of our pastors graduated wrote a book titled Bully Pulpit, Confronting the Problem of Spiritual Abuse in the Church, and I just finished it two weeks ago and have interacted some with Dr. Kruger and just how convicting it was. Um, so, so I say that to say this sermon isn't actually about the, the, the spiritual abuse and hurt in the church. So I, I want to make sure you hear me not just jump into, hey, the church is a gift and you need to get involved and love it and it's great and, and leave and think, boy, if they knew my story, they would have never said that. Uh, early, this week, early this week, researching the sermon and working on it, texted a guy who mentored me who I love dearly and um, I sent him a quote about the gift and priority of the church. It's in your bulletin along with all those other quotes. I said, man, thank you for teaching me this so many years ago. I, you know, this is so true. Despite all the hurt, the church is a gift. And he said, yeah, thanks, the church is a gift, and it, it does tremendous harm. And when he texted me back, I was in the middle of going to a meeting and distracted, and I just kind of saw it and did like a thumbs up, but it kept gnawing at me. And so I, I texted him two days later, and I said, hey, are you okay? Um, and, he, and he's in leadership in a church and has been for a long time and in leadership in our denomination, actually. And he said, yeah, I'm okay, he said, but all my children are grown um, and they love Jesus, but they, they really, really are struggling with the church because of how much they've been hurt. And it really, it, it just broke my heart. Um, one assignment we had to do before Dr. Langberg came and spoke to us was send out a, a 360 evaluation on all the students in my class and asked people to send anonymous feedback on our leadership styles pastorally. You had to send it to five people. So I sent it to five people that I work with or who are on leadership at Hope that I feel like really like me and tend to tell me I do a good job. <laughs> right, this is a reflection of like my fear and insecurity. When I was like, maybe I need some more feedback than just them. So I, then I sent it to five more people in leadership at Hope that I've had some conflict with. And then I kept thinking, man, maybe if I really want to grow in the area of self-awareness and, and get to know myself better, I need to send it to people that don't like me, that have left hope, um, to my knowledge, primarily because of me. And then when I got out to St. Louis and we read all the anonymous results, one person said, I don't know who said it, one person said, yeah, listening to the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast reminds me of Ham and, and how he treats people. I hope that's not fully true. Um, 
but I say that like we need your prayers. I desperately need your prayers. And if you're here today and this is your first time coming to church in years because you've been beat up and run over, we're really glad you're here. And we'd love to know and help you in any way we can. And so I, I said that's not the focus of the sermon and that intro was longer than I expected. Um, but I do want to make sure I acknowledge that on the front end so you don't feel hurt even worse by a sermon about what a gift the church is. Um, so let me pray for, for God to, to speak to each of our hearts the way we need to hear from him. Lord Jesus, we, I mean, we just confess in light of those different conversations that um, thinking about your church, participating in your church, um, being involved in relationships with our brothers and sisters that claim the name of Christ is messy, to put it mildly. But you're not surprised by that. Um, you specifically prayed before you went to the cross that your heavenly Father would help us love each other because you knew how much we needed your prayers. And so, Lord Jesus, I thank you that you're interceding on our behalf right now. And I do pray that you will give us um, supernatural love for one another. Uh, we do desire to not only grow in experiencing your grace and mercy, but also to reflect to the world um, something different. Um, that's true, but, but boy, our, our, our country needs it so badly right now. We are so divided, and, and discourse is so toxic. Um, we pray that you'll um, help us to live in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received. Help us um, to be conduits of your grace. And so speak to us now through your word for your glory and our good, we ask in Christ's name, amen. Now, the topic of the church, there's hundreds, if not thousands of passages we could have looked at. And for some reason, I kept gravitating back um, to John 17. And I didn't really know how to shave it down. So maybe this is the Lord inviting me to repent of being efficient, like I talked about last week, because it's a long passage. But I want to read the whole thing. And if you've been in church for a while, you're probably familiar. This is known as Jesus' high priestly prayer. It comes during what's known as his farewell discourse. So this is one of the last conversations he's having with his disciples before he goes to the cross and they betray him. And, and it's significant. Everything Jesus, that sounds dumb. Everything he did and said that is given to us was significant. But, but earlier this week, one biblical scholar said, um, to dismiss and not take to heart what Jesus is saying is tantamount to someone you love dearly and claim to be in close relationship with coming to you saying, I'm getting ready to die. I'm never going to see you again. And there's something so important and near and dear to my heart that I need you to hear. And you just yawn and say, no, I'm too busy. I don't really care. And so I hope that even as we read a passage that may be very familiar, um, that, that, that we can really take in to heart what is clearly on Jesus' heart in a weighty manner before he goes to the cross. And what you'll notice is that you can kind of break this prayer down into three parts. And the first is Jesus in the first five verses focusing on his coming death. And then he transitions to praying for his current disciples. And then at the end, he prays for us. Those who have come to believe in him through the work of his disciples and his church um, throughout the ages. And so let me read to us from John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. And he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people who you gave me out of the world. 
Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them. And they've come to know in truth that I came from you, and they believe that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, will you keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. Not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture may be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, that these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. The world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be as one, just as we, you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe you have sent me. The glory you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know you sent me and love them, even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So a ton there, right? Obviously, we're not going to be able to jump in and dissect half the, the meat that's in this passage. But one of the questions I think this raises in Jesus' prayer is, what was the main focus of his earthly ministry? Now, of course, if you step back and you ask that question, the clear focus of his life and him coming to earth um, as a man of sorrows to taste our suffering was to accomplish salvation for his people. And he did that in three primary ways that we refer to as the good news of the gospel. He lived a perfect life in obedience to God's commands in every way for us so that we can have a righteousness that is freely given to us. And then he did the unthinkable when that work was accomplished. He went to the cross and was nailed to a tree so that we could experience forgiveness for our sins before thirdly rising victorious, conquering death in the grave. So that is always, if I say what's the kind of main focus and mission, that's always the main focus and mission and the heart of the message that changes our lives and that we are to take to the world. So let's not, you know, get confused about that. But if we back up and say, yeah, but what did Jesus actually spend the majority of his earthly time and ministry doing? Was it teaching? Was it preaching? Was it healing? Was it training? The answer I think you can clearly argue is that, no, he spent most of his earthly time Investing in the church, investing in the people he prayed for throughout the middle of this prayer, his disciples, those that his father had given him. 
He could have taught so much more. He could have gathered bigger crowds. He could have, quote, unquote, done so much more effective work to make um, the kingdom expand in a more efficient manner. But instead, Jesus overwhelmingly spent inefficient time doing the thing that he prays for throughout this prayer, which is teaching his disciples to love one another. It may have sounded, if you've never heard that prayer, super repetitive, like did the commentators mess up and reprint the same verses over and over again. Because seven different times Jesus prays, Father, make them one as we are one. That is his heart more than anything else. He says, protect them from the evil one. You know, they're not of this world. But he doesn't repeat those phrases. He says over and over again, my desire and heart is that they will love one another that they will be one as we are one. When we get, you know, have wedding ceremonies and marriages, we say the two become one. And and Paul says in Ephesians 5 that the marriage illustration is a metaphor for the way Christ relates to his church. Jesus' heart and emphasis here before he dies is that his church will reflect to a broken, divided, toxic world what it looks like to love people that are different than you. He says this in John 13, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. The the TV show, The Chosen, um, helps me, it kind of highlights this for me in a new way. We've been watching that show with with our daughters, and if you've never seen it, I I recommend it. It's the first remotely like Christian show or movie I've ever recommended because half the other ones are like your cheese fest, and I don't like them. Um, Sorry, that's a critical statement. If you're involved in the production of a different one, Sorry. (laughs) But the chosen brings to life a lot of these stories. We know we're reading the Gospels and it says Jesus and his disciples traveled from, you know, Jericho to Capernaum. You know that that was actually a journey. It can just be two verses in our Bible. And watching the chosen, you're like, wow, yeah, there was just a lot of just normal interaction that took place. And watching the chosen really brings to life how um, focused Jesus was on getting people um, that would not naturally associate with one another to love each other. And two of the people that in one of the recent episodes, it hit me so clearly, was Matthew the tax collector, who wrote our first gospel in the New Testament, and Simon the zealot. And so they were both Jews, but Matthew was a tax collector, which means the hated Romans came in, and he didn't just work for them with a government job. He sold out his people completely. And he made himself wealthy and rich at the expense of his Jewish brethren. And then Jesus converts him and saves him and says, come be one of my disciples and a part of this ministry. And I want you to learn how to love Simon the Zealot, someone who is completely opposite. If you look up Oxford Dictionary, it says a zealot is a person that's fanatical, uncompromising in their pursuit of religious, political, or other ideals. They are an extremist, a radical, or a diehard. And that's the general definition. Then it says, historically, this refers specifically to people like Simon the Zealot, a member of an ancient Jewish sect that aimed at world Jewish theocracy and resisted, even physically, the Romans until A.D. 70. And what's fascinating is that Jesus doesn't come and say, all right, Matthew, I've saved you, and you lean so far left, and you're pro-government, and you're more of a liberal. I'm glad you belong to me. Go hang out with other liberal, you know, pro-government people. And Simon, you are an extremely far-right, conservative, fanatical extremist, Okay, I want you to be one of my disciples, but just hang out with these people over here because this is too volatile. No. He says the way people would know you belong to me is not by what you tell them, but by the way you love one another. 
See, see, the church of Christ is meant to be a supernatural community of natural enemies. D.A. Carson says it so clearly. He says, the church itself is not made up of natural friends. It is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education or race or income levels or politics or nationality or accents or jobs or anything of the sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural connection, but because they have been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. In the light of this common allegiance, in light of the fact they've been loved by Jesus himself, they commit themselves to doing what he says. And he commands them more than anything else to love one another. In this light, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. You know what I'm about to say. This raises an important question for us collectively as a body and each and every one of you individually that claims the name of Jesus to consider. Are the people that I naturally hang out with and connect with that I call my friends or my community, are we in community because of our identity in Christ? Or are we in community just because we vote the same way? Because we send our kids to the same schools? Because we're members of the same country club? Because of any, we went to the same school. Because of any other worldly reason. Now, don't get it twisted. There's nothing wrong with having friends in the church that you enjoy doing certain things with. I'm not saying you, if you have any friends that you like to do things with, you both like to play golf, stop doing that. I'm not saying that. But I think we have to genuinely ask ourselves, am I connecting and relating to other people that are naturally different than me because my life has been changed by the love of Christ or do I only naturally hang out with people that are just like me? The past three years have been so toxic. One, you know, um, political pundit said that we haven't had this much political division in our country since the Civil War. And that's no surprise. Y'all know that. Social media and news outlets, they're feeding on the anger and the division. And, and sadly, what that revealed in the church is that a lot of people that used to say we're really close and we're tight and we're connected and we're community. Oh, wait a minute. You vote that way? Oh, wait a minute, you're pro or anti-mask or pro or anti-vaccine or, or pro or anti some, you know, racial movement. I'm done. Like, I'm out of here. Like, this is something we, we genuinely need to consider and take to heart. Do you have any friends that vote differently than you? Do you have any friends that challenge you on your opinions? Or are you not even open to discussion, much less interaction? And I'm not saying this like throwing stones. It, it, is, it is so easy for us to think, oh, we're loving each other. But what we're technically doing is just loving the relationship we have, not actually loving each other. D does that make sense? I met with a guy on Friday and had lunch, a former pastor who's a member of our body now. And I love it. I love when former pastors come. Well, let me, let me tweak that. They normally come because they're, they're beat up and they had to leave ministry or whatever. So I don't love that, but I love like they come in kind of wounded. And so there's a shared camaraderie of just the weightiness and stuff of ministry. But anyway, so we, we got together to have lunch and we were talking and he's like, man, we've enjoyed being here and we've, we've loved the connection and we have experienced hope as a grace-centered community. But he said, I don't want to say this critically. He said, but I wonder sometimes, um, are we not making the main thing, the main thing, namely the gospel of Jesus and the privilege we have of sharing that good news, but rather we're making the main thing, I'm lonely and I want to have friends. And I call this Christian community, but I really just want to have friends. And he was super gracious and kind and said, what, what do you think about that? And we had a great conversation and it concerns me too. 
at our officer training class a few weeks ago, this is elder and deacon candidates. Um, we did a case study, kind of a lab. Let's talk about, because guys are asking, hey, we've, we've read a lot and we've talked a lot. What does it actually look like to shepherd and love someone spiritually, to, to help meet someone's physical felt needs? And so one of our other pastors, Matt Guzzi, got permission from one of our members to, to share her story that involved um, a ton of both shepherding and mercy. And it was heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking. We spent the whole morning discussing it. And there was abuse, there was addiction, there was divorce, there was excommunication. I mean, it, it was super sad and heartbreaking. And so he gave a general overview, and I was sitting over in the side with some guys, and after he gave his take and overview, he said, Ham, what, what, what would you add here early out of the gate? And at one point, this woman who had to leave lived with us. And, and you know, guys, he was like, you were super involved. And I, 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 I had tears in my eyes, and I said, well, honestly, guys, um, this couple was in our community group, a community group that I was leading. And all these signs were there, and we didn't enter in at all. And what makes it even worse is we would hear other people in the church say, oh, our community group's having issues and things aren't going well. And we would say, oh, ours is great. We love this community group. But the reality was we just loved having friends. Yes, we did Bible studies, and yes, we prayed, but the fact of the matter is you could have removed Jesus, and I'm not sure how much of a difference it would have made to that entire group. We were mainly just hanging out to have good friends. And so I, I called my friend on Saturday, and I was like, I, just, I need once again for you to hear me say how sorry I am that it was clear there were issues going on, and we didn't enter in, mainly because we didn't want to disrupt the kind of fun friendship group we had that did fun things together. And she was unbelievably gracious and loving and kind, and God has done a a lot of redemptive work. And I know that's not always the case, so I'm not throwing that on as a random bow at the end. But I think we do need to consider and ask ourselves is, yeah, Lord Jesus, have we been so transformed by your love and grace that we're actually loving other people? Or are we just loving the benefits of friendship and community that we get from other people? The church is meant to be a supernatural community of natural enemies. That's why Jesus seven times in that prayer before he dies prays, Father, please help them to be one as we are one. And please don't get it twisted. It's, I'm not saying these things to make you feel guilty and upset, but rather notice what Jesus says. The second th thing he says the most in that prayer besides make them one, make them one, make them one, is the why, so that our joy may be in them so they can experience the blessings that they're created to know by being in deep and intimate relationship with God and other people that they would not naturally be in relationship with. When our elders have to sit down and, and kind of review our membership roles and, and, and take stock of like who's here and who's gone and are we, are we connecting with everybody and the church keeps growing. And when we did this last year, one tiny, super small if I can even call it victory, let me say minor encouragement, it's not a victory, is when we sat down and looked at people that got super upset and left the church because of different COVID decisions, the one thing we were sort of thankful for is it was almost exactly equal on each side. People that, that leaned and had super strong opinions, um, let's say in a conservative manner, and people that had super strong opinions in the opposite direction. Now, it's complex. People leave for many reasons. I don't want to overgeneralize or simplify that. But my point is we were thankful it wasn't just like everyone who's super far right left or everyone who's super far left left. But, but rather that it was almost equal because, like, 
The goal is never that that only one political party associates and affiliates with Jesus. It doesn't mean politics don't matter. It doesn't mean there aren't justice issues and loving your neighbor issues. I can't even get into all of that. But are we reflecting the love of Christ to a lost world? Jesus says in this prayer, Father, our glory is going to be revealed in them as they go out. And I send them out into the world the way you sent me. And he says the primary way that our glory is revealed in them is the way they love each other. And for people to look out and say, I can't understand how y'all could ever be friends, much less love and sacrifice and give generously to one another. It makes no sense to me. And you're like, I know, it makes no sense to me either, other than God's grace changing my life. And I'm so overwhelmed by his mercy that it transforms the way I live. Like, I I know I got to hurry up, but there's so much I feel like we can say about the church and shoot, time goes so fast and... I said, shoot, I didn't cuss. <laughs> Years ago, I was like rocking and rolling, talking too fast as I always do. And I said something and afterwards, like, I can't believe you cussed in the sermon. I'm like, I didn't, I don't think I did, but maybe I did. But I said, shoot, time is going too fast. The, the, the way as we enter in by the love of Jesus and the grace that transforms us into relationships in his church with people that are naturally different than us, and we begin to experience God's love and grace transforming our life, we will begin to be conduits of that grace to other people and experience joy and blessings that we previously would not have known. And so the primary way this shows up is is us bringing our need of other people, our need for the church um, into the open. And so Ed Welch in his book, Caring for One Another, um, says it so clearly this way. He says, our helpfulness... Our care for souls, it always starts with our need for care. We need God and we need other people. Maturity through dependence is our goal. Imagine an interconnected group of people who entrust themselves to each other. You can speak of your pain and someone responds with compassion and prayer. You can speak of your joys and someone shares them with you. You can ask for help with sinful struggles and someone prays with you, offers hope and encouragement from Scripture, and they stick with you until sin no longer seems to have the upper hand. There is openness, freedom, friendship, bearing burdens together, giving and receiving, and Jesus is throughout it all. We want more of this. Amen. Understatement like crazy. Everyone wants more of that. Everyone is dying to be a part of a grace-centered community that is transformed by the love of Christ. The more we are aware of our need, the more we experience Jesus' love and grace through his hands, his feet, his eyes and ears throughout his body, the more we enter in, the more it leads to gratitude. And gratitude always leads to generosity, and generosity always leads to joy. I know it's messy and confusing at times, but it is such an unbelievable gift. And I could keep telling. I got like 20 more stories in my head that I feel like I want to share and tell, but for the sake of time, I'm not. Um, And I'm going to stop because I asked my friend Jennifer Kruger if she would come today and share a little bit about how she's experienced God's love um, through his church throughout her life. So, Jennifer, if you'll come on up. Hi. Um, As Matt said, my name is Jennifer Kruger, and my husband John and I have been attending Hope for about five years. If you are surprised to see me standing up here getting ready to share, I am even more surprised. 
As a former preschool teacher, I am generally terrified of speaking to groups of people over the age of six. But Matt called Tuesday evening seeking someone from the more seasoned stage of life to share about what church has meant to me. Though, like Moses, I consider myself more timid um, and definitely not having the gift of words, I couldn't resist the nudge of the spirit. How could I not welcome the opportunity to speak about something that has been such a source of life to me over the past six decades? Just a little bit of background information about me. Um, my husband John and I are Yankee transplants. I grew up in Clark Summit, Pennsylvania, a little town about 20 minutes outside of Scranton. I was the second of four children, and my parents took us to church every Sunday, a rhythm that has stayed with me. John and I have three adult children, Ben, Hannah, and Nathaniel, who live in Manhattan, South End, and Dallas, Texas. My primary passions in life have been centered around faith and family. I loved my years as a stay-at-home mom, and as an extension of that, as my children grew up, a preschool teacher. Okay, so back to the reason I'm sharing with you today. What has church meant to me? At a very young age, despite my parents' disenchantment with the church, I always saw it as a very special place. It was a place where I began feeling something stirring in me. One very special memory from my childhood years was a precious Sunday school teacher, Margie Symes, who taught me and my small group of peers from third grade through high school. Margie was a widow and a cancer survivor whose arm was permanently damaged from over-radiation. No matter her own personal sadness or pain, Margie showed up every Sunday morning with the warmest smile and the most loving heart. Though I didn't understand it at the time, she exemplified Christ to me. Margie was one of the first people I talked to about coming to faith in Christ at age 18. She came to my wedding a few years later, and we remained letter-writing friends until she passed away. Being part of a church community gave me the gift of that treasured friendship. Throughout my college years <clears throat> and, um, and early married years, the church was the place where I really began working out what walking with Christ looked like. In light of my relationship with Christ, what was my vocation to be? What impact did it have on my relationships? What implications did it have for marriage? How would walking with Christ make a difference in so many areas of my life? I really needed to be immersed in solid biblical teaching and to be walking in faith with fellow believers to help sort all these major life questions out. When John and I were ready to start our family, we decided to uproot from our home in Boston and move south to Charlotte so that I could have the possibility of staying at home with our son, Ben. We left both of our families and all things familiar and headed into foreign territory. Once in Charlotte, we visited several churches, longing to find one that felt a little bit like home. 
One Sunday, after leafing through the yellow pages, we found a church that had the tagline, Feels Like Family. That was exactly what we were looking for. And truly, church became an extension of family for us. We met dear people in our years there, several who are dear friends to this day. During those grueling, trying years of parenting, church became a partner, helping us to lay a foundation of faith for our children. Our church community became a place where we celebrated life, grieved loss, prayed together, and grew in the Lord together. Our church community is where I learned to be a more godly wife, mother, sister, and friend. It was a place where we could grow our gifting and encourage those around us. It was a place where I looked to those older than me for examples of how to be a woman of faith through the high mountains and the low valleys of life. Now it is my turn to be one of the older women. After years of parenting, serving, and working, God led the way for us to come to hope. We were so in need of a fresh reminder of our own brokenness and God's steadfast love and mercy. The children are all grown up. The job has ended. My home is very quiet most of the time. Many of the things that brought definition and value to me are no longer there. John and I are empty nesters, and what are those years supposed to look like? How do I use the extra time in my days? I love that the Lord has put us in a church home where there are so many young families. It takes a lot of courage to be a parent, so thank you for showing us the beauty of affirming life. And I, of being, I, I'm sorry, and I pray that you will find the encouragement and support you need within this church family, and I, I really do love being a part of that. As well, John and I love our fellow empty nesters and are deeply grateful that God gave us another chance to discover such sweet fellowship. Growing older in grace with you is a privilege. As a woman who has now moved into a more seasoned stage of life, it is the greatest desire of my heart to continue growing in my love for Christ and to do whatever thing he sets before me so that I can bring glory to him. There seem to be endless opportunities to serve in a growing family of believers, and I continue to learn that I can't say yes to every request, I can't meet every need, I can't fulfill every expectation, and neither can you, and neither can our pastors. My prayer is that God will give me energy and capacity to say yes to his best. And sometimes embracing the quieter rhythm of life now is the best thing. I need more of him so that I have more to offer. That said, I encourage each of you to find a place to love and serve this growing family of believers called Hope. I have made some of my best friends serving shoulder to shoulder in some way over the years. It's been my small way to say thank you back to God. And I said it in the first service, I'm gonna embarrass Matt again, but we um, love you. I know I speak for everyone here. Um, we love you and Tripp, and we're so thankful for your service to us. All right, thanks. Jennifer. 
you know, it takes a lot of courage to be willing to stand up and share. And when I called her on Tuesday night and she answered, I said, you know I'm calling? She goes, do you want me to share? <laughs> and before I said, I said, well, thanks for answering if you thought that's the reason. Because last week I called somebody to share and she didn't answer. I left a message. I texted throughout the week. And then finally I saw her late last week and I said, are you okay? I thought something wrong. She goes, yeah, I just wasn't going to talk to you because I didn't want to share. <laughs> You never have to share if I call you, but I'm not only calling you for that reason. And a couple quick clarification points. Um, I didn't simply want Jennifer to share because um, she's an empty nester or a seasoned saint or whatever. Um, ever since I've known you, I've, I've been so extremely thankful, one, that we're brothers and sisters in Christ because of Jesus. And apart from him, we'd never know each other. But also, your, your humble and just like gracious, compassionate heart is such a gift. And I love that I didn't want it to be like someone share about the church and sound like a hope commercial. Um, I love that you've loved and benefited from the church, big picture church. Hope's not the only game in town. And so if you're here today for the first time and you're like, man, I, I, I feel drawn to a church, but it's not this one. That's fine. That's great. We'd love to help you get plugged in somewhere. We don't think, you know, hope is the end all be all. Um, but do believe that the body of Christ is an unbelievable gift and something that is mission critical to Jesus' heart. I want to read this quote by Megan Hill in the front of your bulletin um, to conclude. In her book, A Place to Belong, Learning to Love the Local Church, she says, Belonging to the church will always increase our obligations and decrease our independence. And this is good. Because God's people are our family, we will hold our own preferences and priorities loosely. We will open our hearts and our doors. We will pull up another chair to the dinner table and add another name to our prayer list. We will give them our groceries and furniture and smiles. We will share their grief and trials and disappointments. We will look for ways to show love. And as a result, we will expect to have less money and less free time than we would have on our own. We will expect to have added sorrow, but we will also expect to have great joy. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we confess in, in all the variety of emotions that can stir around this topic that we need your grace. And your word makes it clear how much you care um, about the local church and your body, your bride, and how much you care that we um, learn to love each other. And that's why there's so many um, examples in the New Testament of prayers and exhortations that we will be gentle and humble and patient as we bear with one another in love. Um, we confess it's hard. It's so much easier to not enter in or to only gravitate to people that we can naturally connect with and don't need your grace at all. Help us to be a transformed, supernatural family made up of natural enemies, to experience your love and grace, but also to be conduits to a hurting and lost world. We pray that for your glory and our good. In Christ's name, amen.